Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. The reckless love of God, the lost found. Great way to start the year, focusing on the love of God. And I know we always know about the love of God, perhaps, but actually to take time to delve into the love of God, to look into it more intently and to position ourselves to receive it. I really believe that we've met with God in incredible ways, but I really believe after this morning, he wants us to meet with him even more. I believe that there's some people here this morning who, who may be still looking into this thing called faith in God or still looking into this thing that looks maybe like a religion or looks like a relationship and you can't work it out just yet, but you're intrigued. What's this all about? This singing, this raising of hands. It was like normal music, but something else was different. There was a peace that came over me. There was something else that I knew there was something different this morning. And, and if that's you this morning, I I would like to say that God's reaching into your heart and he's reaching out and saying, I'm here and I want to know you and I want to meet with you and I want relationship with you. And that relationship is found through faith in my son, Jesus Christ, whom I sent to die for your sins on that cross almost 2,000 years ago. Now that has nothing uh, that wasn't planned as a part of my message, so I should really start my message now. But the reckless love of God. A reminder that we're, we're not saying that God is reckless. We're saying and suggesting that the way in which he loves us is reckless. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at someone who's investing money, someone who would take all that they have and invest it in something that would give them little or no return, that would be foolish, that would be careless, that would be perhaps reckless, right? See, God is not reckless and God is not careless, but the way he loves us looks like that sometimes when he leaves the 99 to go and search for the one lost sheep. He takes no consideration for what it would cost him. What did it cost God to send his son for you? It cost him everything. What did we gain? We gained everything. But what does God get back in return from us? Well, God doesn't need anything from us. God is self-existent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is everywhere. He doesn't need us, but still he chose to create us for relationship with him. And he loves us knowing that he might not get that love in return. It costs him everything. He bankrupts heaven for our behalf. Reckless, beautiful, amazing love. And this is what this series is about, the lost found, the reckless love of God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the older brother. And the title of this morning's message is The Prodigal Brother. We've heard about the prodigal son last week. But I'd like to talk about the prodigal brother because we're going to find that as much as the prodigal son last week was far from the God in in location, we find that the older brother is far from God in relationship. Proximity close, but worlds apart, and we'll get to that in a moment. So I'd like us to look at the context of what Jesus was speaking into, see the context of how they applied it, and see how we can apply it to our lives now almost 2,000 years later that this text is still speaking, and this text is still a magnifying glass that God is looking deep into our hearts. And then I'd like us to catch us up on on what actually happens in the story and then focus on the older brother. So bear with me. The context, we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus is speaking into a context that is divided. There is discrimination, there is division. There is a massive wall between Religious ideas, a massive wall between cultural ideas. 
In society, there's this division. In culture, there's this division. In religion, there's this division. On the one side, we have what we call the sinners and tax collectors, which was the majority of the Jewish population at that time. And on the other side, we have the religious, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which were actually the minority. And the Pharisees looked upon the sinners and the, and, and the, the tax collectors and said, you're unclean, you're dirty, I don't wanna be with you. And they built this wall in their hearts between them, separating themselves from them because they wanted to be holy, they wanted to be set apart. That's horrible. That's horrendous, isn't it? But it is, isn't it amazing that Jesus is still speaking today and our culture is divided? There's this massive wall of hostility between sometimes what the church represents and what believers represent and what the world experiences. There's a massive wall of division along racial lines, political lines, cultural lines. And we find that what Jesus is talking into 2,000 years ago is actually what Jesus is still speaking into, breaking down the walls that we build up in our hearts, softening our hardened hearts that have no compassion on one another. On the one side, we have the Pharisees saying, I'm holy, you're not. And where do we find Jesus? He's in the middle. He's in the middle, bridging the gap between the two, and we see him doing that on the cross as well, making the two one, making them both realize that they're on a journey home. See, the Pharisees were more interested in being right about Scripture than fulfilling Scripture. I'm going to say that again. The Pharisees were more interested in being right about Scripture than fulfilling Scripture. The Pharisee sect started a few hundred years before this uh, in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra as a result of their teaching. They wanted to be set apart for God. They wanted to be so set apart for God that, that they were living holy and living to please God. And that sounds noble and that sounds amazing, right? And maybe that's how your walk with God started. I'm gonna do this thing. But after years and years of the way they went about it, they just wanted to be right about the commands of God. They, they just wanted to fulfill all the commands of God and they didn't wanna have anything else to do with anything else. They just wanted the commands of God, and and slowly and surely what happened was in their attempt to serve God faithfully, they lost the heart of God because they were caught up in the commands of God. And to those commands and laws, they added their own interpretations and their own traditions, and they were equally weighted with what God had said. And by the time Jesus is speaking to these tax collectors and sinners and these Pharisees, they have over 615 or so laws that they're trying to live by. Every day so that they can still maintain this, I'm holy, you're not. I'm godly, you're not. With their picket fences, all about what God was against, not what God was for. Sound maybe, but like some of us and how we approach God sometimes. And into this context, Jesus speaks the story about the prodigal son, this one who is a sinner and throws it all away through reckless living, and this older brother who is different. This is the context of this story and this is the context of what Jesus is speaking to us this morning. And we need to find our place within the narrative of this parable. When we read the parables, we know that there is an application that God had for that specific context, but we know that the word is forever speaking and we've got to see where do we fit in this. And maybe this morning you're one of those who are far from God in sin and maybe have not yet put your faith in him and you're saying, I'm gonna be that prodigal who returns home to the father this morning. Or else maybe we find that we're not the prodigal, we're maybe doing okay, but maybe in our hearts we're more like the older brother. And we need to apply that to our lives this morning and find Jesus in the middle, once again leading us to the Father. Let me pick us up, basically Luke 15, you can turn there in your Bibles, I suppose you're already there, the scriptures will come up behind me. 
Let me tell the story briefly and, and, and then we're going to get into the older brother. The father has two sons and the younger one comes to the father and says, and we heard this last week, give me my inheritance. Now for an inheritance to come, someone had to die. So basically the young son we heard last week is saying to the father, I don't care whether you're alive or dead, just give me what is mine. I'm not interested in a relationship with you, I'm interested in what I can get from you. And this was disgraceful, this was dishonoring and it would have had cultural implications as well as financial repercussions, but the father gives him his inheritance, and the son leaves for a distant land, for a faraway country. He distances himself from the father, and he squanders his inheritance on wasteful and wild living, and he gets to this point where he has wasted it all, thrown it all away on prostitutes and wild living, as his brother says later on. And not only has he lost it all, a famine comes in the land and he ends up, this young man who once would have had servants working for him now has to hire himself out to a person and a citizen in that country. And not only has he hired himself out, he ends up working with pigs wanting to eat what the pigs are eating. And I remember the context. We've got these sinners and tax collectors and we've got these Pharisees who actually looked at the sinners and tax collectors and considered them on the same ground as pigs, unclean. Because according to their law, according to their tradition, you didn't touch pigs, you didn't eat pigs because they made you unclean. And now they're listening to the story. And the sinners and the tax collectors are listening to the story and they're saying, oh, that's me. And the Pharisees are looking and saying, yeah, that's you. You're like pigs, you're unclean, you're dirty, you're sinners, you're broken, not like us. And Jesus begins to continue. In verse 17, it says, but he came to his senses. I love that. We need to come to our senses sometimes and understanding the love of God, that it's not our own reflection of who we think God is. It's his reflection and interpretation of who he is imprinted on us. And he comes to his senses and we pick it up in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. Pause, breathe, underline it in your Bibles. He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And he gives this speech that he's prepared that we heard last week. And the father silences him with his love. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is amazing. This is extravagant. This is beautiful. And right now, those sinners and tax collectors, knowing that they're dirty and sin and judged by a group of people, start beginning to think, hey, there's hope for me. The Father loves me. Even though I'm broken, even though I'm a sinner, the Father has space for me. The Father wants to reinstate me. This is amazing. And the Pharisees are looking and saying, but they're pigs, but they're dirty. They're no better. They're not like me. And Jesus is in the middle, trying to bring these brothers home, breathing hope to one and challenging another. There's significance to what the father gives the son, and I'd like to touch on it briefly because this is just a beautiful explanation of what the father's love does for us and what the father wants to do for you and I this morning. He says, bring the best robe. Now here the robe signifies dignity and honor, a place of dignity and honor. 
Let's remember where this kid has been. He's been in a pigsty. He's possibly naked. We hear that he doesn't have shoes. He probably smells quite bad. He's dirty. He's full of shame. He has a reputation. He has a history. And the father looks at him. He's expecting to maybe be rejected, maybe be tossed aside, maybe to become a slave of the father, to earn his way back into the family. One day, maybe that will be my goal. And maybe I could one day just be called a son again. And his father silences and he says, bring the best robe. See, the father comes and he, he covers his nakedness. He covers his shame and gives him dignity and honor. You know, what is interesting about that robe is we read in the Bible that the Pharisees wore robes, very fancy robes. They loved being set apart and loved being seen as different. They had these amazing robes and they would be thinking, hey, that robe should be for me. And Jesus says, no, I take that which is best for the one who least deserves it for the least of these because he's returned to me. That's the love of the Father. Bring the best robe. It covers his dirt and his shame. He says, put a ring on his finger. A ring in, in, Bible, in the Bible was signified invested authority and identity. What I mean? Well, the ring was, uh, the family name was, was put in that ring, and that ring was kind of used like a credit card. Having just moved to the USA uh, uh, just over four months ago, I've come to realize that without a credit score, things are pretty difficult. <laughs> You're a nobody without a credit score, apparently, which is actually a good thing. But here I am in America trying to start a new life, and the banks are like, we don't care who you are. There's no invested authority in you. There is no credit history. We're not going to invest in you. And pretty much like that young son, he'd wasted everything. And he comes back to the father, and the, the father puts a ring on his finger, which basically meant when he went to the marketplace... They didn't see his zero credit score. They saw the father's credit score. They saw the family name and they saw what the family, so he didn't need money. He could just show that ring and there would be all this credit there. Wow. He gives us authority. And he's like, I'm gonna be a servant and he practices the speech and the father says, you are my son and he restores the identity. That's what the love of the father does. He gives authority and he restores the identity. And then he says sandals, and sandals in the Bible, to be barefoot was often a sign of shame, mourning, and poverty. He says, no more shame. He says, no more mourning. I can see, I can see, I can see. It's time to put some dancing shoes on. We're going to have a feast, and we're going to celebrate. I'm about to turn your mourning into dancing, and that's what the love of the Father does. And the Pharisees are, think, Pharisees are thinking, no, the authority is ours. We are the experts in the law. In actual fact, of Jesus, it was said that, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. The Pharisees thinking, we're the authority on the law. We're the authority on godliness. And then Jesus comes and enters in and he upsets them because he's the one who is the authority. And the Pharisees did not dance. They did not celebrate. Why? Because they were too caught up in trying to be right about Scripture and then fulfilling it. And they were twisted and rigid and strict. And then the father gives him the fattened calf and a massive celebration. The fattened calf was a, a calf or an animal specifically set aside and fattened up for a feast, for a special occasion, for a sacrifice, or for an offering. And the father comes and he takes this, which represents what is set apart, and he gives it to the least and the one who least deserves it. And he says, I see value in you. And we heard this last week, whether we've lost through foolishness like sheep, whether we're lost through carelessness like the coin, or whether we're lost through willfulness, we are just as valued by the Father. And when we return to him, he reinstates us and restores us. And the Pharisees are thinking, I want the robe, I want the ring, and I want the authority. I want the shoes. 
It's all about me. I want the fattened calf. I should be getting it. Look how every day I'm trying to adhere to these 613 or however many laws it is. And Jesus comes and he gives us two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Enters into the context and breaks down the wall and makes it livable for everybody, not just for some select few who thought they had a clue on what godliness was. And enter the older brother. And, and let me be honest, I get irritated now. I get frustrated because we're about to meet the self-centered character who is so set on what he has done and what he thinks he deserves and what he thinks he is entitled to. There's not one bit of compassion in him, not one bit of love. And I just get frustrated. I want to shout at him. I want to scream at him. I want to pull out my hand. Thank you. And let's read why. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Oh, we don't dance. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Notice how he goes to a servant. Where is he? Where's the father and where's the son? They're so far away. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. No compassion for the brother, he replies. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The ESV says commands. Remember the context, the Pharisees, all these commands, all these rules, all these regulations. And now suddenly the sinners and the tax collectors are realizing that they can find their place, they find their way home through, through Jesus and find their way to the Father. And the Pharisees are like, I don't like where this is going because I get nothing out of this. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh, I get angry. I look at this and I'm thinking, what kind of human can be so hard? And the more I judge him, the more I get irritated with him, the more I want to scream at him and pull out my hair, the more I realize that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was painting a portrait of my heart. And a picture of very often what the church can be like with their picket signs, with their marches, with shouting what God is against with venom and with fury, without carrying the heart and fulfilling the scripture of love. There's no closure to this sermon today because I can't bring closure. And Jesus doesn't bring closure. He leaves us hanging afterwards. What happened to the older brother? How did he respond? He doesn't let us know because in the context of today, how will we respond? We cannot bring closure and a three-point sermon, an application on, well, this is what we need to do so that we're not the older brother. God's looking into our hearts. Will you love? Will you love? He's got a hard heart. And I thought I'd look at some, based on his response, some symptoms of a hard heart. And perhaps we find ourselves within the older brother's shadow. Perhaps we find when we look into our hearts that our proximity to God is close in that we are here on Sunday. We're here at Connect Groups and we've been serving him all our lives and slaving away all our lives, but we find in, in relationship we're actually we're far from him. See, the first thing we realize about a hardened heart this morning, it leads to harsh treatment of others. In verses 28 to 30, we see how this, this older brother treats the father. Remember the, the ancient society that this is speaking to. The, the father was the man of the house, the one who was respected, the one who was honored. You did not disobey him. You honored him. When he spoke, you listened. 
And here the son comes and the father's pleading with them. Fathers did not plead with their children in this time. Just like fathers did not raise their robes and run to meet dirty sons who had disobeyed them. Showing us that the father God that we serve is nothing like culture, nothing like history, nothing like social divides, nothing like we've ever known. And it can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Harsh treatment of others. He's so hard, he doesn't let his father speak. His father's pleading and he's short and sharp and he just delivers this argument. He's also harsh on his brother. He says, this son of yours, who happens to be his brother, who happens to be the same flesh and blood, who happens to have the same resemblance, who happens to also have have been made in the image of God and his likeness, filled with the breath of God. And he says, this son of yours, the wall of hostility, the wall of pride, the wall of hardness of heart. I want nothing to do with him. He says, he thinks, he screams. So hardened in his conviction that there's no compassion. We hear about the father being filled with compassion. We hear about Jesus healing the sick. How many times does it say in scripture, Jesus filled with compassion. So hardened in his conviction. So hardened and being right about what he believed in the scripture, not fulfilling it, there was no room for compassion. Here's some application questions to unearth the inner older brother, perhaps, to help us navigate whether we're more like Jesus or more like the older brother. Do I find it easier to judge or to love? Is there a group of people, maybe in a lifestyle choice or social, demographic, or political persuasion, that the moment I hear of them inside me, automatically, I just, I just want to judge them. And the cool thing, and the, the, the thing about this is nobody knows right now. It's you and God looking, resting through these questions. Do you find it easier to judge or to love? The very one who was called to judge and the very one who will judge comes and enters in and puts judgment aside so that he can show grace and mercy and love. This is Jesus. Another question, is my life filled with compassion or anger and frustration and maybe self-pity? He was so centered on what he deserved, on what he thought was right. He was angry and frustrated. I mean, I get angry. I get frustrated. But is my life marked by anger and marked by frustration and marked of treating people harshly? Or am I filled with compassion? And the final application question is, do I seek to love others or to convert them? This is a specifically a believer question for this morning because the Pharisees of that time, they wanted to get converts because if they got converts, they would have been seen as successful. They would have been seen as doing the right thing and, and drawing masses to their cause. Oh, look how amazing he is. Look how many people he has saved. Am I looking for converts or am I looking to show God's love? These are challenging questions. This is probably the hardest sermon I've ever had to prepare. The symptoms of a hardened heart, number two, a hardened heart distances us from God's presence. In verse 20, where where the father is running to meet the younger son, where is the brother? He's in the field. Okay, maybe he was working that day. But wherever we find the father, we don't find the older brother until the father actually comes to the older brother. In verse 28, where was the older brother? He didn't enter and he, he refused to enter in. And you know when we've got hard hearts, it's like a cycle, an endless cycle because when our hearts get a little bit hard, we don't want to go into God's presence because we, we want to run away. We feel we need to hide. 
And the longer we're away from God's presence, the harder our hearts become and the more we build up these walls. And the Pharisees are saying, I don't have a wall. I don't have a problem. They've got the problem. And Jesus is saying, I've come to break down the walls. I've come to lead you to the Father. I've come to lead you home. Distances us from God's presence. He's just as far away as the younger brother was, but in relationship. The only way, the best way I can describe this is every now and again, a husband and a wife have an argument or a fight, right? Ever seen one of those? Perhaps they're driving to church and it happens and then it's just quiet and the husband just puts his hand on the, I'm still in South Africa, that's it, on his wife's <laughs> leg. And there's silence. They're in the same car, there's proximity, but they are miles apart. They are worlds apart, right? The same thing, and I hear an amen in the front row. The same thing happens with our walk with God. We come to church, we sing the songs, perhaps we try read our Bibles, and it's all about what I'm trying to do for God, how I'm slaving away from God. God, can't you see me? And we're far from God. Relationally, we're removed. And the longer we are removed from that place of his presence and intimacy with him, the harder our hearts become. He says, I've been slaving away from you. And what we realize with this older brother, that maybe somewhere along the line, he was with the father, but through maybe unforgiveness, maybe bitterness, maybe something else happened, we don't know. But at this stage, we find him working for the father, not working with the father. And so often I've looked back on my walk with God and I've had some great adventures and great walks and great times with God and then there's been these periods where I've just gone and tried to do things in my own strength and I realize, wow, man, I've been working for God and trying to do a lot for God but I haven't done a lot with Him. It's a small difference at the start but at the end it's a massive difference. It's a difference between Jesus and the older brother. See, God doesn't need you to work from Him. He's not hiring at the moment. He really isn't. He's not. It's not like sign up now, put your faith in Christ and we'll put you to work in the field. It's not that. Nowhere in scripture does God beg us to work for him. He doesn't need it. He doesn't want that. But we see all through scripture, through the narrative of God's love story, we see him creating man to have intimate relationship with him, to be fruitful and multiply and to fulfill God's call with God. The Bible tells us we are co-laborers with Christ. How's your co-laboring going or are you finding yourself slaving away and working for God? You see, when we're distanced from God's presence, we begin to live like slaves and not like heirs. Some application questions, and these are speaking to my heart this morning. Is faithfulness for me defined by how long and how much I've done or served God or by how close I am to the Father right now? Is my walk with God more about going and doing or being in His presence? Do I feel my walk with God is defined by a list of what I have to do or by what I get to do? You didn't have to come to church this morning. You got to come to church. I didn't have to love my wife and my children this morning. I got to. I didn't have to raise my hand and throw my my life at my God in song and surrender. I get to do that. Because I'm not a slave, I'm an heir. I'm a child of God who's been given the best robe. I'm a child of God who's been given identity, who's been restored, who has sandals and dancing shoes on his feet, who has the fattened calf, who actually is Jesus. From the beginning of time, God sets apart his son, Jesus, as the sacrificial lamb, the the fattened calf who would be sacrificed for us so that when we came home, the sacrifice was accepted, the best sacrifice, that which was set apart for us. Point number three, when we have a hard heart, 
Hard hearts keep score and have an attitude of entitlement. He keeps score. He says, this is what I've done. This is what my, my brother's done. or my, that, that son of yours has done and this is what you've done. He's keeping score. He feels entitled. He says, I've slaved away from you. Therefore, I deserve. I've been faithful all these years. Therefore, I am entitled. The fattened calf should be for me. And that's a strong argument in all honesty. Of all the people who have actually been trying hard, it's this guy. God's not into trying hard. He's into intimacy. He's into walking with us. He keeps score. He has this attitude of entitlement. And because he feels entitled, he's more interested in what he can get than in having relationship with the Father. It's no longer about who the Father is and what he wants, but about what the Father can give him and must give him because of all his hard work. When we have hard hearts, we forget about mercy and grace. And just quickly, mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. And grace is when I do get what I don't deserve. I'll let you ponder on that. What do I deserve? I deserve eternal separation from God. My sin is so great that a holy God should not be anywhere near me. I am a sinner. Yet he chooses to call me saint. He gives me what I don't deserve. I deserve punishment and separation from him and he gives me life. I don't deserve to be given everything I need for life and godliness. But he gives it to me, and that's grace. He gives me what I don't deserve. I deserve separation, but he gives me mercy. I don't deserve all that he gives me, but he gives it to me. Why? Because I'm now his child. We forget mercy and forget grace. And therefore, we don't extend mercy and we don't extend grace. An application question. Do I ever feel entitled or deserving of the blessing of God because of my faithfulness? What happens is we perhaps know about the Reformation and we realize, no, we cannot earn our salvation. It's by grace alone and by faith alone. But what slips into our walk with God is we try to work harder to earn his blessing, to try to earn his favor. God, I've been reading my Bible all week, therefore I should be blessed. I've been trying to serve you all my life, therefore I should be entitled to something. And when somebody else gets the blessing, somebody else gets the promotion, somebody else gets an exciting advancement in their walk with God, we look and we think, how could you touch them and not me? Because I'm entitled through all my hard work and slaving. Am I good at keeping score? Is my faith about what I can get from God or about being with him? And I wonder if the band could come up now because I want to speak for the last few moments on the cure for a hardened heart. Right now the Pharisees' backs are up against the wall, so much so that after a few more parables like this, they decided to kill Jesus because they didn't like how he was upsetting what Jesus was doing, how Jesus was walking radically in the middle joining the two, bringing heaven to earth. The cure for a hardened heart is simple. If we look at all three of the parables that we've looked at over the last three weeks, one of the themes that is essential to all of them is this of repentance. And before we maybe get spooked out by a really old Christian word that maybe has been abused, repentance basically means this. It's the Greek word, and I'm gonna get this wrong, but it's metanoia, which basically means a change in heart, a change in mind, a change in purpose. We find the youngest son, he comes to his senses and he gets up and he goes to the father, verse 20 says. He gets up and he goes to the father. He turns from the direction he's going and he comes to the father. Repentance. See, sinners simply put when we turn from God. And the Pharisees had made it about a lifestyle and all that, the things that you could do and couldn't do and simply put, sinners when we turn from God. Therefore, what we need to do is turn back to God and that's called Repentance.
It's simply put, how do we have soft hearts again? We come and we turn to the Father and we find our place and we receive his love and we say, sorry, forgive me, God. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, it starts with saying, Jesus, I believe that you came to be the way, the truth, and the life that would guide me to this, this Father's love that is so reckless and so beautiful and so extravagant. And for us who maybe have been serving God for longer, it means that we just turn back to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for having a hard heart. I'm sorry for building this wall in my heart, this unforgiveness, this, this prejudice, this pride, this thinking that I'm better, this separating myself from others because I think I've got it all together. And Rachel, you can play in the background. We're gonna break bread in a moment and the band's gonna sing. But I'd like to end with the second application. How, what is the cure for a softened heart? Remember there's treasure inside. And I'd like to tell the story of my dad. My dad had a few hobbies. He was an electrician by trade, but he loved dabbling in carpentry on the side. One of the the favorite things my dad would love doing is on a Saturday, drag me and my brother to the dump, the rubbish dump. I don't know if you call that here where people throw their trash away. And he would look for broken bits of furniture, things that people had tossed aside. I mean, I've got things to do on a Saturday. I mean, I've, I've got plans. And my dad drags us and we're on the back of his truck and, he, and it's smelly at the dump. I don't know what the dumps are like here, but it smells, it's, it's just horrible, it's dirty. I like being clean. And there's my dad, he's waiting to see what people are gonna throw away. And he scrummages through the dirt and through the trash and he, he would bring these big pieces of rotting furniture home. And I'm like, dad, just go and buy something new. He has my dad, the, the carpenter, and he would take it and I'd have to hold it while he's sanding it, while he's cutting it, while he's, while he's getting bleeding hands from loving this wood that is so thrown away and worthless. And he worked on it in the garage and he worked on it. Then I'd go inside and he'd spend hours working on it. This is my dad dabbling in carpentry. And over the next few days and the next few hours of, of his spare time after, after sanding and after stripping paint and after finding other pieces of broken wood and patching them together, this thing would begin to take form. And I'd still be like, oh, Dad, just buy a new one. But he knew there was treasure inside. He knew there was treasure inside. And what some people saw as trash and thrown away, he said, there's treasure inside. And he knew that he had the skill to make that which was broken once again beautiful. And over time, they would transform. And at the end, we'd be looking at this piece of furniture that we'd think, wow, where did you buy that, Dad? And then he'd give it to friends and he'd give it away. And the joy of him was seeing that piece of furniture that he'd restored in somebody else's house. He didn't do it as a business. He just wanted to see stuff restored and placed and used again because he knew there was treasure inside. He bled, he sweated over that stuff. He spent time over that stuff to restore it, to renew it and to make it new. And in my dad, I see the Father doing the same with us. That which is tossed away, that which is thrown away, that which is in the rubbish dump, taking it home, bringing it closer to Him and working it, bleeding over it, spending time to make it and fashion it into something new. And we have the choice this morning to receive that. Or to say, no, thank you. I don't need to be made new. The Father is beckoning us. He's calling us into relationship. Whether we have relationship with Him now or not, He's calling us deeper, 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 Come home! Come home!
I've made the way. You don't need to slave away any longer. Well, all eyes are closed if that's you this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Christ. You say, I need to come home. I'm that piece of trash that nobody wants that's been tossed aside. Make me beautiful, God. Save me by your precious blood shed on the cross. If that's you, well, all eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so that I can know who I'm praying for this morning. God's reaching down. He wants to make things new. If that's you, just raise your hand. You're not responding to me, but I need to know who I'm praying for. Anyone here who wants to make a first-time commitment this morning? A few more seconds. I'm going to add to that. If you're here this morning and you know you're the prodigal, you're not the older brother, you're the prodigal. You're far from God through willful choices. And you say, this morning I'm coming home. I've, I've maybe made a mess of things, but God, I want you to make it beautiful. If that's you, raise your hand. I'd love to pray with you. You're responding to me. Anyone here this morning would be my joy. I'd like to pray for those groups of people and then I'm going to pray for us as perhaps responding to the prodigal brother inside of us. Lord, I thank you for every heart that's responded to you. Now, even if a hand was not raised, but I thank you for the hand that was raised. Where the heart is feeling far from you, God, I just pray right now that you bring closeness, proximity in your presence. Thank you that you see our hearts and you see our response and you see our repentance. We're just, just turning to you. We turn to you this morning, God. Now I pray for all of us in this room who maybe feel like inside our hearts is the stain of the older brother. The portrait that you were painting all those years ago is actually us this morning. We have no compassion. We're so filled, uh, so centered on what we can get out of you rather than how we can be with you. If that's us this morning, I'm gonna pray, Lord God, that you would come and minister to us. And as we turn to you, soften our hearts and help us know that there's treasure inside. In this building this morning, there's treasure inside. And wherever we go through this week, there is treasure inside that we would love before we judge. And that we would attempt to fulfill Scripture rather than be right about it. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.